Let's get going. Millie, can you just pass those around? We've got chocolates for everyone tonight. So. Um, they're left over from this morning's Mother's Day service. So enjoy. Enjoy the chocolates. That is good. Alright. So nice to see everyone here this evening. And it is, it kind of feels like it's a big start to turn two. Things will calm down. I heard worship night on Wednesday was fantastic. Just encourage you to get here. The next one is in June, I think. And um, we're going to do like a really special, cool setup in the round in June. We've got, we've got plans, people. We've got plans. So how good is Millie doing in her role? What a good height. <laughs> All right. Um, it is really nice to be preaching again after a couple of weeks off. Um, obviously, Paul Zanardo is a fireball, and I hope you enjoyed him. He called me after I got back from Hawaii, and he was like, how much mopping up do you have to do? I'm like, Paul, that's why we bring you in, to just roll a hand grenade into the church, and then fly back to Melbourne. <laughs> Uh, and then so fun having Uncle Nate here last week, so um, we had such a good weekend with him. He stayed at our house with his wife and kids from Newcastle, and he's just such a joy to, to have around, so um, what a blessing. Alright, so lots of things to sign up for. Use those QR codes and let us know you're coming to stuff. I know we've already got, I think it's at least 9 or 10 couples coming to Marriage Course but we'd love more, we'd love more, so sign up. Well, we're finishing this series uh, this term for about half the term, and then we'll move into something new in, uh, it's called, What Did Jesus Teach? There it is! And that is an actual picture of Jesus. Uh, if you didn't know, that's what he looked like. So, <laughs> um, the premise of the course has been, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we need to know what he taught. What did he want to disciple us into? When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, what's the way? What's the truth? What's the life that he's talking about? So if we're going to be disciples, we need to know what he taught. And according to Matthew 4.23, Jesus' teaching involved proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Like if you want to know what Jesus was about, Jesus was about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And it tells us it was accompanied by healing and deliverance and people getting free. And part of it is preaching the good news of the kingdom is Matthew 5, 6 and 7, which is called the Sermon on the Mount, where he teaches what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is what it looks like if your life is shaped by the gospel. Uh, it's turned upside down, right side up. And so it's no great surprise that when Jesus talks about who's blessed, we have in our mind who's blessed as the biggest house on Bower Street and you know, hanging out with these people and this many Instagram followers. I have three. Um, and Jesus says, no, the blessed are 
the poor in spirit. The blessed are the peacemakers. The blessed are the merciful. The blessed are those who spend their lives hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And he then calls us to be the light of the world in darkness, to be salt, that is to preserve and add flavour in the decaying world. Uh, he then fulfills the law and the prophets. And he says, you know, he said in the, old, in, the, in the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, don't kill, do not commit adultery, don't steal. And then Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And he says, don't just be your life about keeping the law so that you can get to the end of your life and say, I never broke the law. But, but Jesus goes after our hearts. He's like, well, what's behind don't murder? It's anger. Deal with the anger within your heart if you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You know, it says don't commit adultery, but Jesus says don't lust. Go after the thing that will actually poison your marriage, which is lust, if you want to have be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So he wants to move us from not just law-keeping, but into the freedom that lies behind the law. And then he talks about hidden righteousness. Does anyone remember any of this? Why do I do this? No, do we remember? Okay, good. Uh, if there are things that Jesus wants us to put on display, our mercy, our meekness, he says there's things that I want you to, to hide from others. And then he goes into this section about giving and prayer and fasting. And he says, don't be like the hypocrites who like to give and announce it with trumpets. Or they like to pray by doing it by standing in the public square. Or don't fast by you know, making yourself look all gaunt and oh, look how spiritual he is. It's like do these things in private so that you can please your Father who's in heaven. Don't do it for the, don't do it for the, for the, for the, for the applause of those around you. Um, and in the midst of that, Jesus teaches us how to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in the heart of that prayer is the prayer that we want to be praying every day of how we live our lives. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. And so, you know, he paints what it's like in heaven. You know, peacemaking, mercy, kindness, uh, you know, all these things. And our prayer is to be... May heaven come to earth. May that be our prayer. In our relationships, uh, in our lives, in our work, whatever we do, in our, in our, in our acts of charity, may heaven break out on earth uh, through our lives. And you'll be pleased to know that my chalk drawing got washed off that wall. But now that I look at it, there is still some glue on that. So I apologise to the elders. Alright, and then Joey then preached on not worrying but seeking first the kingdom of heaven, and that then brings us to today. So, we come to chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, the final of these three chapters dedicated to the main teaching block of Jesus' ministry. And we're going to this brilliant section today on not judging others. Uh, and then what have we got to go? A bit about us, seek not, a bit about the golden rule, which all of our Christian ethics is based on, right? Doing to others as you would have done unto yourself. Uh, and then Jesus talks about the narrow, uh, the narrow path and the wide path. Uh, he talks about true prophets and true disciples won't be known by their religious pontificating, but by the fruit that they produce in their lives. 
I mean, Jesus, this is like some of the best stuff you will ever hear in your life. He is brilliant in chapter 7. Uh, and then the big closer, Jesus challenges us, put into practice his teachings, and it's a warning. It's like if you put into practice what I teach you to do, it'll be like putting, building your life like a house on rock. But if you ignore my teaching and follow the ways of the world, it'll be like building your life like a house built on sand. And then he says, the storms come, and trust me, the storms will come in your life. Right? No one escapes hard stuff. And then the foundations of your life will be tested and how you've been built. So today, Jesus, the most brilliant teacher in history, has some things to say on not judging others and planks of wood in our own eyes. So that's not really relevant to us, is it? Like judging others, we don't, we don't do much of that. Um, none of us ever sit in judgment of someone else, right? Um, no one ever would focus on the flaws in someone else's life while ignoring the flaws in their own lives, right? None, we don't do that. So let's move on to the next section. <coughs> no, this is good stuff. Uh, Jesus, the one who comes to set us free. Matthew 7, verse 1 to verse 5. He says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Oh man, that's good stuff, isn't it? Yeah, the preparing this sermon was a breeze, like, didn't convict me at all. So, three quick comments before we get into the meat of this. Firstly, have you ever noticed how funny Jesus is? Right? Now, this is good in light of Uncle Nate coming last week, because um, I just want to note how funny Jesus is here. Obviously, he is making a very important point about not judging others, but like most brilliant communicators... He uses humour to grab our attention and to burst our pride. Right? I mean, this is funny stuff. Like, hey mate, what you doing? You know, you're having a crack at Pete's drinking problem. All the while, you're holding a vodka cruiser in your hand. Right? Hey mate, what you doing? You're having a crack at Susie and John's marriage. All the while, your relationship's frostier than the Arctic Circle. Right? He says, you're focusing on the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. Meanwhile, you've gone down to Bunnings. You've got yourself a two-by-four plank, and it's hanging out of your own eye. Right? Well, I think Jesus is funny. <laughs> right? And that's, he's brilliant. Because he has a way of cutting to the point and getting at the hypocrisy in our own lives. You know, he does this through exaggeration, through hyperbole, right? I think it's the same in the last passage. Jesus is being funny. Like, he's, he's deadly serious, but he's being funny. He says, you've got a lust problem, cut your hands off, right? He's using exaggeration to get his point across that this stuff is so serious, that it's so ridiculous 
that you should be beginning to deal with this. And so the importance of what he says comes through. He uses humour to get to the deep stuff that mars our lives. But it's serious, right? He's got a serious point. How many of us spend our lives in useless judging of others where it consumes our thought lives and it leads us to becoming toxic towards others? And so Jesus, at his brilliant best, is going to go after what diminishes us. And just a final point before we get into the meat of this. Have you ever noticed how interested Jesus is in you and your heart? Now, I'm sure I'm the only one who ever does this, but do you ever hear moral teaching and immediately your mind, your temptation, is to immediately think of someone else who this applies to? Right? It's like greed. Oh, yeah, that's definitely a problem for Craig over there. Or last, yes, Johnny, he has very naughty, wandering eyes. Uh, anger, you say? Yep, yep, no, anger. That'd be Sarah. She's a bit of a fireball. Uh, right, we, that's what we do. We immediately think, who's this appointed other than ourselves? But let me tell you exactly who Jesus is interested in confronting and helping and transforming in this passage. Can anyone guess? It is you. It is me. Jesus wants to go after the condition of my heart and stop me focusing on everyone else. And that's the brilliance of this passage. With its humour, with its pointedness, he is interested in the plank in my eye and he's interested in the plank in your eye. And I think that's at the heart of what Jesus wants to do with your life, right? He is interested in the renovation of your heart. That the kingdom of heaven might so take a hold of your life that you stop being a constant victim, right? Or you stop spending your whole life blaming others for your problems. And instead of seeing what's wrong with the world as somewhere out there, right? You start dealing with your own failures. You start dealing with the plank in your own eye. And I think if we can do that, we can unlock the potential for a transformed life, right? Because we no longer constantly go, well, that person's the problem, or this person's an issue. And you begin to say, Lord, deal with me. And once we own our stuff, we are committed to dealing with the stuff that diminishes our lives. I really believe we are then someone the Holy Spirit can work with. Amen? That was resounding. Amen? Amen. Uh, it reminds me of the famous correspondence with the, um, the Times of London about a hundred years ago. They had it with significant members of society at the turn of the century. And they posed the question, what is wrong with the world? And all kinds of politicians and pundits pontificated about what was wrong with the world. Ideologies, class divisions, people with addictions, blah, blah, blah. They went on and on. <coughs> And then to the question of what is wrong with the world, the Christian writer G.K. Chesterton eventually submitted his answer and he simply wrote back to the Times of London newspaper, I am. I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. See, to me that seems a good place to start. Deal with the sin and condition of your own life before trying to solve the issues of the world. That's why Jesus says this is a hypocrisy issue, right? 
and, and hypocrisy is always funny because it's easy to point out. It's like politicians who go on about environmentalist stuff while driving their big gas-guzzling cars, right? Or living in their big mansions or flying their private jets to Davos, right? Like, hypocrisy always stands out. And so we make our own bed before we try and fix the world. I must admit, in a world of outrage and slacktivism, do you know that phrase, slacktivism? I am a world car class slacktivist. Slacktivists are people who change the profile picture on Facebook to like the latest cause while doing absolutely nothing to lift a finger to actually transform the situation, right? That's slacktivism. And that's what we've got good at, right? Pointing the finger, saying I'm for this while not doing any of the heavy lifting. I'm drawn to the work of the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson. His 12 rules for life. Rule 6, set your house in perfect order before you criticise the world. Yeah? Right, the gist is sweep in front of your own door before pointing out that the street is dirty. And he's on to something, right? You know, make your own bed, tidy your own room before you think you can solve the world's most complex and intractable issues. I'm not saying don't be a voice for justice and a voice for the voiceless, but like, at some stage we've got to grow up and deal with the mess in our own lives. Or as Michael Jackson said, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. Alright, moving on. So, what kind of judgment is Jesus talking about here? The sense of the Greek word judge that Jesus uses here is not so much about the judgments we all need to make in order to navigate the world, right? If I leave my children with someone, I'll make a judgment whether that's a safe thing to do, okay? That's a good, Jesus is not saying don't judge in that sense. What Jesus is talking about is judging others in the condemning of someone and writing off their whole character, right? writing the last sentence of their life. Just writing off their character. It's judgments where we cease to have mercy on a person and we discard them as not having worth because we have characterised their entire motives of being. How do we know we're doing this? Well, maybe we sit in bed at night and we feel a sense of bitterness or disdain for someone rather than seeing them as created in the image of God, right? So we just, we, just, we, just, we just sit there just judging, right? This person is, is the problem with my life at the moment. I remember when I was studying in Vancouver, there was this Canadian guy who um, started a bit after me. And he walked into college, he was a good-looking rooster, he was a cool dude, and he used to walk into college with this guitar every day. And so I just immediately wrote him off. <laughs> I just judged him in my mind. It was like Josh walking in with that. But like, you know, he was just, he was a cool dude. And, um, and then I remember we went away for this weekend out to the professor's farm on Galliano Island. And he came. And of course it turned out he was like the nicest guy you'd ever met. Right? And there was me in my, my foolish stupidity, having spent like a good three months judging this guy as a writer. And not only that, he was from a missionary family where his dad had been a surgeon and given up his career to go work in war-torn Angola. 
all the way through their civil war. And as a result, this guy who became a good friend of mine had contracted polio uh, that had affected the rest of his life. Right? What a wake-up call. Stop writing people off. Stop judging them. And give people, you know, the same way that God looks at them. Alright, how do we learn from Jesus in all of this? Uh, firstly, obviously Jesus calls us to drop the stones, stop condemning others. And secondly, Jesus models what a life that values mercy over judgment looks like, right? Now, I don't want to rehash these stories. Clearly on that first point of dropping the stones, I'm talking about the woman who's caught in adultery. So how does not judging, how does dealing with the plank in your own life look like? Well, Jesus says to the condemners, you without sin... Cast the first stone, right? You, without anything in your eye, can be the first to condemn this woman. And it says the old men leave first, and by the time Jesus is left alone with this woman, everyone is gone. And Jesus just says to this woman, does no one condemn you? And Jesus says, yeah, then neither do I. Now go, leave your life of sin. And then Jesus chooses repeatedly mercy over judgment, right? I mean, I can choose from a dozen stories in the Gospels. But think of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, despised by his countrymen, collecting taxes for the imperial government from his own people to give to the Roman Empire. And, and who, who does Jesus go to dinner with? He calls down little Zacchaeus and he says, I've come to seek and save the lost. Everyone else has written off Zacchaeus. But Jesus sees him as someone made in the image of God, redeemable and worthy of mercy. Now in both cases, Jesus chooses mercy over judgment. He sees these people not as sinners who deserve what they get, but as the children of God created in his image. And where others want to write them off, Jesus allows their stories to continue to be written. Amen. You know, when we in our brokenness, we want to write the final sentence of a person's life. Jesus chooses to allow God to be their final judge. And he gives them the space for redemption in the mess of their decisions, right? That, that's, that's, that's our saviour. That's, that's who we're learning from. The Apostle Paul would reflect on this very idea in his letter to the Romans. Chapter 2, he writes this. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same thing. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same thing, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance and patience? Not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So that's the model, right? That's the model. Uh, the point of choosing kindness or mercy over judgment is it leaves space for a change of heart. Right? Okay, as we close, um, Jesus desires us, right? He wants to, Jesus doesn't want us to like get saved and then spend the rest of our lives just full of judgments and bitterness and all of the problems and issues that we had before we became Christians, right? He wants to renovate our hearts and free us from judgment. So what might help us? Um, because here's the thing, I figure like, if we put this into practice, this could actually make our lives better, right? 
This could actually change our marriages. How many of those who are married make judgments about our spouses that then just leads to arguments and all kinds of bad stuff, right? Or, or how many of us are in a workplace situation right now where we've made a judgment about our boss or a colleague and as a result that relationship's toxic, right? Or maybe you've got a friendship and you see someone making their decisions and you've just, you know, you're beginning to, sh- you know, have issues, shun them because you've got issues, right? This stuff can actually change our lives. So I wonder, if we instigate a new rule in our lives, that before we judge others, we commit ourselves to praying for that person for 48 hours. Ooh, I like that. Right? Before you send your pastor an anonymous letter, pray for him for 48 hours. (laughs) Yeah, I found myself having to do a bit of this recently. Uh, I find my mind wandering towards judgmental thoughts towards someone and I have to stop myself and pray for that person. Uh, And it's certainly a lot harder to write someone off if you've just been praying for them. Amen? Right? I think there's something in this, right? An unchecked thought life that is given over to judging others leads to bad places. But if we invite God into the situation, how much easier is it to then have peace with someone, right? Rather than using your mental energy to condemn someone, use your mental energy to pray for someone. And and I'm sure that's why this is the passage that comes directly after the passage about worrying, right? How much of our worrying is about actually condemning the people around us? So use that mental energy to pray for someone and see if those worries begin to disappear. Second thing that may help us in this area is to be committed to developing empathy in our lives. Empathy, empathy, empathy. Brené Brown, who's the expert on this, she says empathy is the antidote to shame. And shame is always about judgment, right? We carry shame because we feel judged, or we shame people because we're judging them. And she says what empathy does is it fuels connection. She says empathy has no script, there's no right way or wrong way to do it, it's simply listening, holding space, withholding judgment, emotionally connecting, and communicating that incredibly healing message of you're not alone. Isn't that good? Right? That before we judge, we withhold that judgment, and we communicate to them that you're not alone. And I imagine the only way that that can happen is if you're willing to deal with the plank in your own eye, right? It's saying, you're not alone because I'm flawed too. Right? I've hurt people too. Um, I've made mistakes too. And because I'm flawed, therefore, I, I think I can get into your shoes right now and walk a bit of a mile with you. I can understand that, you know, we're all in this together. Alright, okay, final thing is, of course, we've got to let God be the final arbiter of a person's life. Leave it to Him and trust that He is a good and merciful judge. Um, as you go through life, there will be things that you see around you, or maybe even done to you, that are unspeakable, and flaws in people that mean we need to have good and strong boundaries. And, you know, one of the things that I think is reassuring in the Christian faith is that there is a day of judgment. There is a day when every single one of us will have to stand before our Maker 
and give an account for the actions in our lives. But I will say this, don't forget that while we have breath in our lungs, Jesus is sent to seek and save the lost. And we've got to believe that he is there for the person's redemption. Isn't our God wonderfully merciful? He has been so merciful with me. And he's so merciful with you. So let's drop the stones. Let's drop the judgments. And let's get free in Jesus' name.